This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Earlier today, Reset took the show live to Inglewood Branded. It's a clothing store on Chicago's South Side. It was the first in a series of nine broadcasts we'll be doing from neighborhoods and towns in and around Chicago this year. One issue many communities discuss is how the police interact with residents, and on the flip side, how residents can work hand-in-hand with police to ensure their neighborhoods are safe. But what does top-notch community policing look like in action, and what are some of the best practices around police-community relations? Chicago Police District 7 includes the Inglewood neighborhood where we're broadcasting today. The leadership and officers from District 7 are making efforts to bolster trust with the surrounding community. Some residents are taking note and getting involved. To talk about the police-resident relationship, we brought in lifelong Inglewood resident and community leader Roshana Baldwin. She's co-host of the What's Good in Inglewood podcast. We're also joined by Sergeant Dixon. He's the community policing sergeant for CPD's 7th District. And Fatal Perkins. He's a coordinator with the Inglewood Public Safety Initiative, Time 2136. Fatal started things off by describing what Time 2136 is. Time is an acronym for This Is My Inglewood. 2136 represents the zip codes from both sides of the community, 60621 and 60636. And it's a community-driven approach to reducing violence in the community, getting those residents involved instead of the conversations that's being had on the porch of social media actually activating residents to come out and develop the strategies that they feel should happen in the community. And what has the partnership with the 7th District Police uh, Precinct been like for you so far? It's been a good relationship. Um, we're, we're building and exploring ways to bridge that gap between community and law enforcement. We've just been approved for implementation by DOJ, so we're at the beginning stages of rolling out different programs and and trainings that will complement that relationship building between law enforcement and residents. Now, Roshana, you've spoken frequently about a positive shift in relationships between local police and residents on your radio program, What's Good in Inglewood. Also, in the community, you've been talking about this. What do you see as evidence of a shift in trust? The fact that the police come to more of the community events, um, the fact that a lot of the residents can walk into the 7th District Police Station like it's our house without having feeling apprehensive. The officers are now doing their um, roll call outside. The fact that they're, they're doing more coffee with a cop. They're coming to our, you know, dinner tables. They're coming to our um, events. I started my Girl Scouts at 7 District Police Station because of that shift, because I felt like I can, we can connect with the police. Mm-hmm. Well, Sergeant Dixon, I want to turn to you. you. You had the CAPS or Chicago Alternative Policing Strategy Office specifically. Tell us about the work your office does. We're, we're hearing some of the evidence, how it shows up in the community, but how are you approaching this work? First of all, I try to be in tune with every group that's in Inglewood. 
that's operating within Inglewood. Um, and the strategy that we've put in place is basically, if we can make it to all of these events, the goal is to make it to 100%, even though we may not make it to all. I stress to the officers that these are times that we can actually show people that we're not robots. We, we can show them that we're not um, full enforcement. You know, we like to laugh, we like to joke, we even eat, you know. So if we show up to these, in, these uh, events when we're not in enforcement mode, it opens up dialogue. So now people, they see us in a more relaxed setting, and we can actually have decent conversations about whatever they want to speak about. So part of it is about just being more visible in the community. But when we talk about rebuilding trust, that's a a serious endeavor. How do you tackle that challenge in a community that may be skeptical about working with police, collaborating with police? How do you start that work? You know, I think a lot of it comes with uh, communication. We have to speak more. And it sometimes ex- a simple explanation goes a long way. You know, sometimes we, we will take action and people don't understand exactly why we did what we did. Um, but taking a step back and actually conversing with uh, whomever we're dealing with and say, listen, these are reasons we've done what we, what we did. The department is constantly going through changes. All right. And this is for the better. The, the department is definitely not the same department that it was you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, or even 20 years ago. So we're forever evolving. And we realize that dealing with the community or working with the community, in addition to uh, community organizations, is going to be the way that that's going to lead us to where we actually want to be. Fatal, I'm curious, from the community perspective, when it comes to that issue of rebuilding trust, what do community members need to see to feel like this is a relationship worth rebuilding? We have an amazing CAPS um, department at 7th District, right? But I think that energy needs to be transferred to the officers that patrol the beats. There's one portion of the police that's like engaged and and showing up, but then it's like I get this other experience from um, some of the officers, and, and it's not all, but some of the officers that may be patrolling the beat. So it's like that I'm really still not, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, Sergeant? You know, to this point, I just want to point out that one thing. Um, usually when the officers are, like the beat officers on the street, they're constantly responding to calls. So you probably won't get the, the friendliest officer who's showing up, depending on what the call is. Because, you know, once the call come out, they receive it and they process it. So it's, now they have to get themselves mentally prepared for what they're about to uh, step into. And we've gotten a complaint like, you know, that the officers are not waving at us. Uh, they don't seem to be smiling. But sometimes it can be a result of that. They're trying to get mentally prepared. And these are usually in enforcement roles. But I do get exactly what he's saying. And this has been something that where if we know of an event that's taking place, we push for the beat officers in your passing. If you're not doing anything, stop by. We want people to see you when you're not in enforcement mode because that's now you're going to get a different officer. You know, if, if we're going in and we're ramped up because, you know, the, the call is saying that somebody's being hurt, they have to mentally prepare themselves for what they are about to step into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I say, if they're, you know, to and from, like maybe they're headed to lunch or, you know, a little bit of downtime, these are times where you actually get, you know, you get to see the real personality of the officer if we can get them at these events. So. 
we're definitely working to, to tighten that up. Brashana, talk a little bit more about what you're seeing on the ground. We absolutely do see it. When you talked about the trust and how is it built, it does take more of the uh, officers that come from seven districts to look like us that's on the streets and I think we kind of saw that shift when we first started getting black commanders around in 2010 when I really started getting active that's when I started to see the shift that you had the police officers that represented the actually community of Inglewood we still need to see more of the non-black officers engage with us and that's that's it probably what Fatal was is speaking to it just can't be the Sergeant Dixon's or just the CAPS officers, but the other officers who don't, who are not African-American, who are not black, coming out and engaging with us. And they're slowly starting to do it. Uh, Ray Dell Lacey does, not before my parents, with chess. And I see some of the non-black officers who come in, peek their head in and sit down and play chess. But to their trust really started is when we started seeing more black officers. Not necessarily we needed more police in Inglewood, but we saw more officers that looked like us and started engaging with us and started being more, you know, humanized. Mm -hmm. I think the police station is still predominantly not African-American, but more diversity in getting the younger cops who are joining the force to get out of those squad cars and come hang out with us and come talk to us and come, um, you know, engage with us. And they're slowly starting to do that through the different activities and events and what Sergeant Dixon just talked about. And talk a little bit about how you're using the precinct itself, how people are interacting with that space and, and coming in. I've heard about a chess club. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Girl Scouts, yeah. Rashana. What else is happening there? You know, usually when we have something that's community-based, uh, if the time is available, if we can use that space to benefit the Inglewood uh, community, then we try to grant that for them. Not before my parents is one. Another is going to be uh, Girl Beautiful. Uh, and I know I'm going to forget like a few of them, and now I'm going to receive like hate mail because <laughs> I can't Scouts. remember. Girl you Scouts, know, Rashad like, jumped in and said Girl right. Scouts, yeah. But, you know, but yeah, we, we try to remain... Um, open to the possibilities because ultimately the goal is to bring the community together. We're trying to put people together who have ordinarily not been in the same location. Mm. So, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think one of the things that's uh, worked really well in, the, in um, our commander actually reported out in a meeting with the mayor's office that uh, we do this bike ride through the community, rolling peace, that during the day of rolling peace that there's been zero reported violence in the entire district the day that this bike ride happens where I have an organization think outside the block that organizes this bike ride and we partner with seven district and uh, we do a bike tour at night through the community that seven district partners with us to secure the streets, block off traffic as we go through the community, but also leading up to the event where there's this opportunity to have a positive interaction with residents and um, the youth where they're actually out helping, making sure there's air in the tires and um, bike repairs or anything, um, just interacting with the community. Mm -hmm. So we are currently like at over 600 people show up to this mm -hmm. event from all over the city to come ride through Inglewood in the evening. So, Rashana, how do you connect this relationship with the 7th District to community safety. How do you connect that relationship piece to it and how it helps make the community safer? When you feel that you can trust your officer, you're going to call the police. And that was a that was a big apprehension that we're not going to call the police. It was rumored that, oh, the police will sometimes tell who called. And 
having our officers, you know, break down that myth and telling us that's not true and telling us ways that you can feel secure and telling us ways that you can still report crime. Because oftentimes I go to all of the beat meetings. I'm very active. I'm a journalist. So I would hear the, you know, the residents in there like, well, I heard that you all be telling who calls the police and having the caps officers or having the officers just telling them like, no, these are the ways you can still go about reporting. It's not called snitching. It's, we called it a code of care. You care about your community. You live in your community. You're a resident here. You're a homeowner. So you should be able to trust your officer. And once you build that trust, you feel safe. You feel like you can report it without being a snitch. But if you're a resident of your neighborhood, you want to make sure it's okay. Make sure everything's going right. Report the, the crap that's happening. Uh, the trust happens. And I could say I have a lot of the officers on speed dial because of that trust I built. Like every commander that we had since probably 2010 that was black, I I want your contact number. I want your cell phone number. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to reach out to you directly. I want your, uh, you know, assistance number. Sims, all these events that we talked about that came about relationships that was built, seeing the officers, you know, not necessarily just in their uniforms, but actually engaging with us, coming out to our events, hanging out with us. So that's how the trust is, you know, slowly built and just breaking back the layers of understanding that they're also human too. They're still mm -hmm. doing their job. So meet them halfway. The police can't do it all by themselves and the residents can't do it all by themselves. But if you want to address the crime and the issues that's happening meet each other halfway. So Sergeant Dixon, what I hear Rashana talking about there is really it's it two things. There's the relationship part of it, right? Getting to know the officers better, officers getting to know the community members too. But then there's also this piece just about transparency and helping residents better understand how you're going about doing the work you do. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? That actually touches on what I was speaking about earlier. We have no secrets when it comes to this. Um, I think everybody we all want a safer Inglewood. To uh, Rashana's point, it's not really snitching if you're trying to keep yourself safe. You know, the only way we're going to be able to come out of this on a safe side is to come together as blocks, as beats, and then as a community itself. So, and, and I preach this every time I go to a beat meeting or any uh, meeting that's uh, speaking about the crime and reporting of crimes, if no one tells, it will stay on the block. If one person is telling, you may, you, you, know, you may be signaled out. However, if the entire block is known for telling, we will call the police, we will not allow that on this block, the block then becomes stronger. So if we can do that block by block, we can move the crime away from Inglewood. Somebody's in the window, and this we know. Somebody is always looking out. Start the phone tree. Hey, listen, there's a person on the block. We know he doesn't belong here. He's doing this or that. Everybody light up. Everybody call 911. The police come. It become known by the criminals. Hey, listen, you go over to that block. They will call. So let's go to the block that don't tell. Mm -hmm. But if we can make every block strong, we, we will definitely have a uh, safer Inglewood. That's Sergeant Dixon of the CPD's 7th District. Also joining us were community leaders and activists Rashana Baldwin and Fatal Perkins. Another guest who joined us in Inglewood this morning is Joe Bozeman III. He's a researcher at the University of Illinois at Chicago's Institute of Environmental Science and Policy. Bozeman put out a study looking at the intersection of diet, race, and the environment. Different foods and how we produce them impact our environment in different ways, and Bozeman started our conversation by talking about those differences. 
So meat happens to have the highest amount of greenhouse gas emissions, mostly due to the fact that you have to cultivate uh, animals like cows, not only for milk, but also for, for meat consumption. And then as we move down the list, there are some very environmentally intense uh, food groups and food items within the vegetable food group. Uh, then we move over to grains, where we often overlook things like corn, for instance, and how many different ways it's utilized and cultivated. Uh, so that's another area where we would really want to focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that probably is a good top three listing of different food groups that we would pay attention to from a food systems perspective. What about when we talk about things like beans and nuts? They don't have as much of a greenhouse gas emission standpoint as it does a nutritional aspect, right? So we more so need to balance the amount of beans we substitute for meats than we really have to do on focusing food system impacts. Can the way our meat is raised change the dynamic at all? Yes, and, and this is even more interesting if we think about uh, biologically mimicked food, right? Mm -hmm. For instance, protein that is developed by utilizing and growing bacteria rather than actually using real chicken to consume protein. So there are a lot of new technological developments and advancements that could change the amount of greenhouse gas we emit based on food production. Okay, let's talk about your research. Is there a difference between racial groups in the U.S. when it comes to our diet's impact on the planet? There is. The, the study that we did here recently, uh, and it did receive a decent amount of attention, showed that the white demographic in the U.S., consumes food in a way that produces the most greenhouse gas and water impacts, while the black demographic in the U.S. on average produces the most land impact based on food consumption. And just break down when you're talking about impact on, um, in terms of greenhouse gases or imp impact on land, how does it actually present itself? Right. So, so this study is framed for the science wonks that are listening, <sighs> is a cradle to farm gate study. So we're not looking at things like transportation of food and food distribution. We're just looking at what happens at the farm when it comes to raw materials and the production of the food before it leaves the farm. And next, to, to answer that more specifically, there are different kinds of foods that the white demographic eats a, more, a higher volume of than the black demographic that produces these differences. Can you give us an example? A perfect example is milk consumption, right? So the white demographic consumes the most amount of milk, which of course leads directly to cow cultivation, as well as, as other kinds of greenhouse gas production. For the black demographic, why it has the highest land impact there are a higher consumption of things like chicken, sorry for the stereotype, and also for foods like apples. Hmm. And, and when we talk about land impact, what does that look like? It's literally the, the way that we framed it. It's a meter squared per year average. So it's just the amount of disturbed land hmm. on average to produce each food item. I heard you like talking about blueberries. <laughs> what do blueberries tell us in your study? That is another great example for the difference between white food consumption and black food consumption. For instance, the white demographic consumes blueberries, but not at a level higher than the black demographic consumes apples. But this is why it's interesting. Blueberries happens to utilize about seven times more water per kilogram produced than apples. So the black demographic can eat six times more apples than the white demographic eats blueberries. But the white demographic will still yield the most water impact based off of that food consumption habit. I wonder how much of this is also driven by what foods are available where. When we look at where there's population density uh, for certain racial groups, how much does that play into this? It plays a huge role. 
our study is at the U.S. level, so we don't necessarily break it down into a Chicago case study. But the findings and the research that's already been done shows food access drives a lot of this uh, food consumption behavior, especially when it comes to the black and Latinx demographics who have limited access to certain kinds of food. For instance, in another follow-up study we did on a socioeconomic breakdown, we find that the black and Latinx demographics consume higher energy dense, and we're energy dense, we're talking about calories uh, and, and less healthy foods, just simply due to the fact that's what they can access. And give us an example of, of what a calorie dense uh, food would be. Candy bars, mm. chips, snacks. Uh, not only do we find that these things are calorifically dense, but we also find that uh, these, the black and Latinx demographic tends to eat more meals right, to supplement not having as many nutritious options. What food surprised you when it came to a high level of emissions or impact on land or water use? What really stood out for you? Potatoes. Potatoes. Right, which is, is a food that a lot of folks eat on a consistent basis, but we found that to be the most environmentally intense food item within the vegetable food group. Why? It, well, simply put, I think we produce a decent amount of them. And we consume them at a high rate. So one thing that's important to highlight here, it's a marriage between the amount of land, greenhouse gas, and water utilized to produce the food. And we marry that with the amount of food consumed. So I just think it, it has a lot to do with the amount of consumption for potatoes in particular. Let's turn that around. Which foods were surprisingly efficient? One thing that I think we should be seriously considering uh, eating more of is fish and nuts in particular, and reducing our consumption of red meat overall. And if we do that, in addition to consuming much less added sugars, which we haven't talked about here, yeah. you know, soda pop and, and high fructose corn syrup, if we do those things, we're going to see systemic changes and reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, not only for the U.S., but for the entire world. So your study combines social science with natural science. Why was that the lens you decided to look at this through? Well, I, I have to be honest. I, I live in a household with a social scientist, firstly. <laughs> so when I come with my engineering ideas, it, it gets smacked around a bit unless, we, unless I... I categorize it and frame it in a way that matters to humans, right? But more importantly, I think science, sometimes we can get lost in a molecule, so to speak. We really, really have to figure out how that molecule impacts humans, especially for the research I do. So it was intentional from the beginning to look at food consumption broken down by race, not to single out a particular race, but we have to start developing policies and solutions that are effective. We're on the South Side right now, mostly black demographic here. The policies we, we create for this community are going to be different from Evanston, might be different from the area that I live in currently in Rogers Park. So we got to start thinking about policy development, and these kinds of studies help policymakers to develop more effective policy. You talk about policy, and I'm, I'm curious, what are those effective policies that could go towards helping us be more thoughtful about food consumption and how we're growing our food to have less of an impact on the climate? One policy solution we could have, and this is a, a bit technical, but one way to do it is to develop a policy based on the data that we have, but also have within the policy contingencies. If our policy, for instance, tends to marginalize the black demographic on the South Side, instead of having to wait another two to five years to develop a new policy, why not have those contingencies already embedded in the policy? We know that 
policymaking is an imperfect system, we should go ahead and start developing uh, contingency policies. And that's a new way of policy proposing, a new way of policy development, and it will require state, local, and potentially national level action to do so. Considering the fact that our food chain, how food ends up in our grocery store, how it ends up in our kitchen, it's not that we're just, you know, getting food from the farmer down the road or anything like that. It's, it's really a global <laughs> process. Where do those policies need to happen? Is it the national level, or are we talking about something even beyond that? This is a perfect question. I just got finished writing a manuscript on this <laughs> yesterday. So the Federal Trade Commission, for instance, has policy when it comes to imports and exports. We have the USDA, for instance. We also have policies in relations to even religious organizations and how they facilitate food and, and whatnot. So we're going to have to look at it at a federal level, I think, to facilitate regional and local level policies. So that's the the sort of big picture, but I know from talking to people in my life, they're like, what can I eat? What what should I eat? What are those small changes I can make in my life to, you know, have less of an impact on the climate? What are your recommendations? Based on the research we've done so far, the average American needs to reduce about a one and a half ounce amount of lamb chop a day of meat, of red meat in particular and increase their nut intake by about a handful per day. If we just do those two things alone, we're going to significantly increase environmental quality, and then we're also going to see nutritional health increases. That's one way of going about it. Of course, increased fruit and vegetable intake, uh, that's a little bit more well-known. But there are some interesting studies about the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut. The Mediterranean diet seems to be not only a, a popular diet, but one that actually could even stave off cognitive issues as you age. I just saw a, a story on that, I believe, yesterday. You talked about an exploding population and how we're going to feed people who are inhabiting the earth. What are scientists doing to, to start to frame some thinking around how we do that? We're in the beginning stages, right? So we have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that tells us we, we have to change our ways for in, in a certain manner of time. We don't really have the same thing equivalent at a food level. So in a way, we're in the beginning stages of putting together all the, the brightest and best scientists to have kind of a UN of food approach. We do have the sustainable development goals out of the United Nations that give us guidance. But we have a long way to go, I think, in framing this research. The, the manuscript that I have under review now that, that looks at it from a global perspective uh, is really the first that has utilized American data points against a global standard of food consumption. So just in 2019, we've established our first global food dietary consumption standards that every country around the world can abide by. So we have a long way to go to create policy and a groundswell of enthusiasm to adhere to these recommendations. That's Joe Bozeman. He's a researcher at the University of Illinois. We've been talking about his study, which looks at the environmental impact of food production and consumption and how it breaks down along racial lines. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jen. And that's today's Reset. Stay tuned for more conversations from a variety of communities in and around Chicago throughout the year. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.